Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the Sabbath School Commentary. I appreciate you taking your time to consider this week's lesson with me. We're just going to have a word of prayer before we jump into this week's lesson, which is entitled, Finding Rest in Family Ties. Father in heaven, please guide us as we study your word, and give us your Holy Spirit, please, to guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I believe that this week's lesson is mistitled. I believe it should have been entitled, Finding Rest in Spite of Growing Up in a Dysfunctional Family. We're focusing on the Old Testament character Joseph in this week's lesson and some of the struggles that he had to go through as an individual following God and pursuing God's will for his life. Now, the Bible tells us, and this is noted in Sunday's lesson, that Joseph's father, Jacob, showed favoritism towards him. And and this really didn't help him in his relationship with his brothers. Mom and dad, because of love for Joseph and because of their real appreciation for Joseph, uh, they decided to make him a coat. It was a coat of many colors. It was beautiful. It was brilliant. It was glorious. And to the brothers of Joseph, this coat denoted that they cared for him more than they cared for them. Obviously would cause jealousy, frustration, hurt, pain. To know that your mom and your dad favor one of your siblings over you, whether that's true or not, it's a very painful experience. And so the brothers of Joseph are not going to really feel great about Joseph. You know, their parents give him this coat of many colors. The jealousy, the anger, the resentment that they feel for Joseph eventuates later in the story in them almost killing him, but throwing him in a pit and then eventually selling him into slavery. This is a lesson for all of us parents. We've got to be very careful whether we have a favorite child or not to make sure our kids know, all of our kids know that we love them equally. I oftentimes say to my sons, I say, hey, Max, hey, Benji, hey, Desi, who's my favorite? Which of you guys is my favorite? And they know now what answer to give. They say, we're all your favorite. And I say, that's right. You're all my favorite. You're unique and you're special and you're awesome and no one could replace you. And you have a place in this family and we love you. But but it's one thing that we're doing right, I think. And we want all of our kids to know that we love them equally. And our love is not equal in the sense that we don't love them all the same because they're different people. But our love for each of them is equal to the amount of love we have for all the others. And this is really important. And that's a simple but important lesson for us to learn from the story of Joseph and in his family. Now... We know that there are like typological implications in the story of Joseph, that Joseph is a representation of Jesus, and he's favored of God, and he is, he's raised up above his brethren, and his brethren get jealous of him because of that, and they conspire against him, and they crucify him, and they kill him. Because the dreamer who gets visions and dreams from God, who predicts that he's going to be exalted above them, they don't like him, and so they they crucify him. And so in the story of Joseph is prefigured the story of Jesus. And uh, but, But that being the case, it does not justify 
the obvious favoritism that's being shown to one of the siblings by Jacob, their father. It's unfair, it's unjust, and it's not right. And, and it really shows a lot of selfishness. But it doesn't mean that Jacob didn't love his other sons. It just means they weren't a perfect family. And this is a real important lesson. So moving on, we want to uh, focus on Sunday's lesson mentions the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all had serious dysfunction in their families. The family circle did not function perfectly in any of their generations. Yet at the same time, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament mentions them as faithful warriors for God, examples who we can look up to as, uh, yeah, yeah, like heroes that we can look up to as examples for our faith. And, and, and the, the, the lesson asks why that would be the case. With, with all the dysfunction in their family, with how they sometimes made a mess of things, how does the Bible list them in this hall of faith, this hall of champions? It's because that in spite of their imperfections, they continued to, to place their trust in God and to follow the leading of the Spirit of God in their lives so that they could eventually become better, better fathers, better brothers, better, better mothers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not better mothers, but you get the point. The people in the Hall of Faith are in the Hall of Faith not because they were perfect or because their families were perfect, but because in spite of their imperfections, they continued to trust in the one who could perfectly save them and who could work in their lives to change them, to make them better people. And you see this in the story of Joseph with Joseph's brothers. They eventually became good brothers and overcame their dysfunction. Okay, so the lesson I wanted to point out primarily was that of the danger of of favoritism. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. They're jealous. They sell him into slavery. And he's off to Egypt. Whatever hopes and whatever dreams he had as a person are in question. He's being exiled from his homeland by his own brothers. The pain of that would be uh, terrible. And so he's marched off to Egypt. He's there and, and gets purchased by Potiphar. And Potiphar is captain of Pharaoh's guard. And, and Joseph goes into Potiphar's home and begins to serve faithfully. And as a faithful servant of Potiphar, he's promoted. And Potiphar's house is blessed because of the faithfulness of Joseph. In this part of the story, there's an extraordinary lesson for us. And Ellen White brings this out in her Patriarchs and Prophets. Joseph, he came to a point where he almost despaired because of what had happened to him. It wasn't his fault that his dad favored him. He's the kid. He's the son. His parents put him in a position where he, had to, he was persecuted by his brothers. That's not his fault. That wasn't his doing, his making. And so he's suffering. He's a victim of his brother's injustice. And he could have given up, and he almost gave up. He almost gave in to despair, but he made a personal choice that he would not, that he was going to serve God faithfully in spite of his circumstances. And so when he found himself in Potiphar's house, he was a faithful worker, a diligent worker, and, and he maintained his integrity and his faith and trust in God. And his faith was maintained in spite of his circumstances. So if he's the favored son in his father's house, he's going to be faithful to God. If he's an outcast who's been sold by his brothers into slavery, and he doesn't know where his future lies, 
He's faithful to God and God blesses him. It's awesome. But what is the reward that Jacob receives for his continued faithfulness? Potiphar's wife, she develops an attraction for Joseph. The Bible says he's good looking, he's physically well-formed, and he's just an attractive guy. And so Potiphar's wife, who is used to getting what she wants, decides that she's going to have Joseph. He's a slave. He's a possession. She thinks that people are objects that she can use and manipulate and control. And she's going to get what she wants. She wants to have a relationship, a romantic relationship with Joseph, who's not her husband. She's going she's gonna to commit adultery. I don't know if the Egyptians were commonly promiscuous while they were married or not, but she wanted to be. And so she comes on to Joseph, and the Bible says she persists in her coming on to Joseph. But Joseph refuses. Now, he's a man. He's a human being. He has sexual desires. He's a sexual creature. He's biologically outfitted for connection and you know romantic intercourse. And as a young guy, a part of him being faithful to God is exercising self-control. Now, Potiphar's a rich and powerful and wealthy man. It's likely that his wife was a beautiful woman. And she's offering him the opportunity to enjoy the sensitive touch of a woman and to feel the comfort of romance and the satisfaction of sexual pleasure. And he says no. He says no. And not used to getting refused, she flips out and she accuses him of trying to rape her because on one occasion he ran away from her. She held on to his clothes and she ripped his, she tore his shirt. And so she freaks out. She starts screaming and she tells everybody that what happened was that, that Joseph came on to her and he took off his clothes and he was coming on to her to spite him for his faithfulness. He shows more respect to her husband than she does. And he says to her, how can I do this great sin against God? Now, how is Joseph repaid? I asked the question before. For his decision to be faithful to God, whether he's a favored son or whether he's a slave who's been betrayed by his brothers. He gets a woman lying about him and saying that he was trying to rape her when he wasn't trying to rape her. And had he had a relationship with her, he probably wouldn't have gotten in trouble. In the end, obviously, it wouldn't have gone well. So now he's thrown in prison. Guys, I don't think that many of us comprehend the level of commitment that this man possessed. First of all, to not give up when you were sold into slavery, and then to serve faithfully as a slave and be framed by Potiphar's wife and, and now thrown in prison. Wouldn't you be tempted to, to just give up? What is the use of faithfulness to God? Where does it get you? Ah, there in the prison, as many of Joseph interprets dreams, the dream of the king's cupbearer and the dream of the king's baker's dream is a foretelling, or it's a prediction, it's a prophecy that he's going to be killed by Pharaoh, that Pharaoh's going to execute him. But the cupbearer's dreams, a prediction, a forecast that he's going to be reinstated. And the day comes in the future where the cupbearer is serving Pharaoh. Pharaoh's having dreams. He's really torn up about these dreams. He can't understand them. He's looking for someone to help interpret the dreams. His wise men, the great men of, of, of Egypt can't help him. And the cupbearer remembers, he remembers Joseph. 
And so Joseph is brought before Pharaoh and interprets Pharaoh's dreams and becomes the savior, the deliverer of the Egyptian nation because famine was coming after seven years of plenty. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, you need to find a man, a wise man, a great man, and you need to to have that wise, great man rule over the crops for you and to manage the agricultural system in your country to to store away food for the seven years of famine that are coming. Pharaoh's gobsmacked, but he exercises great faith in the prophet's vision and interpretation of his dreams. And he says, who's wiser than you? And Joseph gets placed upon, in a sense, the throne of Egypt, becomes the most powerful person in the Egyptian nation besides the Pharaoh. It's fantastic. It's extraordinary. Through all the suffering, through all the pain, through all the injustice, Joseph was being developed by God to become the second most powerful man in the powerful in the most powerful nation on the face of planet Earth. There is a reason God was permitting Joseph to suffer the injustices that he was suffering. It was developing in him the kind of character that is necessary for someone to possess in order to fill a position of trust. I don't know to what degree Joseph understood that while he was suffering as a victim of injustice. I don't know how much he understood. But but whether he understood much or not, he stayed faithful to God. He remained faithful to God, trusting in the providence of God, that although God does does not desire for people to suffer, God will use the suffering that people endure in this horrible and unjust world to make them better people so that he can work out a circumstance within which they can become exalted and take upon responsibilities that will be a blessing to the rest of the world. I believe that something we can learn from Joseph, and I think this is implied in the story because you can't be faithful as he was faithful without being what I'm going to tell you he was. Joseph was the kind of guy who took personal responsibility. He took responsibility for himself. If he were not the kind of person who took responsibility for himself, then he would chosen to let go of his faith and confidence in the providence of God and the goodness of God. He, he would have not had, he would have not, he would have definitely not have become a hardworking slave in Pharaoh's house, true to duty and faithful and full of integrity, not sleeping with Pharaoh's wife. He would have found many excuses to just indulge his passions, to indulge his desire. Don't I deserve a beautiful woman? This man, Potiphar, He's exploiting me. He's purchased me. I'm just a bird, like a beast of burden, like I'm an animal. I'll sleep with his wife. That's the kind of thinking that would have arisen from a person who excused their immorality because of what had happened to the injustice of their brothers selling them into slavery. He took personal responsibility in his relationship with God, and he knew that if providence places him in the position that he's in, or even just allows, divine providence allows him to be in that circumstance, then he can be faithful, that God does have a plan, that God is going to work all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He took personal responsibility, and that gave him the strength and the conviction to not sleep with Pharaoh's wife and to serve faithfully in the prison when he got sent to the prison, 
He doesn't give up. He doesn't become bitter and resentful and hateful and cynical. If he would have allowed himself to just be a victim, like, I'm just going to be a victim. I'm going to allow myself to be defined by the injustice that was committed against me. Well, then he would have become an immoral man. He would not have served faithfully in Potiphar's house. He would have not have faithfully in the prison cell. And then when he was exalted as a kingly figure in, in, in Egypt, if that ever would have happened, it wouldn't have happened had he not taken personal responsibility and become a man of integrity in spite of his circumstances. He wouldn't have, but even if he would have, he would have, he would have been vengeful against Potiphar, which he never was. He would have resented serving a nation, profited off of slavery. But no, Joseph doesn't do this because he's got the Spirit of God. He rose above all of his circumstances, and he took responsibility for himself. And he realized that although he cannot control the world, he's not in control of everything that happens. He, he is in control of himself, and he can choose. He can't choose what's going to happen to him, but he can choose how he's going to respond to it. And he always responds in faithfulness. And this is beautiful. Listen, I think it's important for all of us to remember that taking responsibility for ourselves our feelings, our behavior, our moral choices. It's not taking the blame for what's happened to us. It's taking control back from the ones who have hurt us. And it's not allowing ourselves to be defined by the hurt that has been caused us by people inspired by the spirit of Satan. And so we live in a world where everyone glories in being a victim and they allow themselves to be defined by the bad things that have happened to them. There's almost a status attached to being a victim. So the, 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 high, the more victim you are, the, the more moral, the more credit you get in, this, in the world that we live in, the, the more social credit you have. And it's funny because I've met people who've really suffered in the world, like really suffered. And they rarely, if ever, use the suffering that they've gone through as a way to distinguish themselves or to, to reach a higher standing in society or, you know, to become more virtuous. And I, I knew a guy from, from Rwanda, and he lived, he was a Tutsi from Rwanda who lived through the genocide that happened there in the early to mid-1990s. If you're not familiar with, that, with, the, with the Rwandan genocide, it's one of those things where I read a few books about it. It is haunting. It is terrible, the history of the genocide of Rwanda. I'm going to give you the most simple version to give you some perspective. The majority Hutu population decides that it's going to exterminate the minority Tutsi population. And one of the reasons is the historical resentment they feel towards the Tutsis. The Tutsis were set up by the Dutch as the kind of ruling class in Rwanda when the Dutch colonized the country. And and the Hutus resented that. They were the majority population and they were to be ruled by this class, this arbitrarily chosen class of people because of the will of the Dutch. And the Hutus were in power in the 1990s, and their president's plane was shot down. And the media and many politicians charged the assassination of their president to the Tutsis, and they defined the Tutsis as their oppressors, began to label them, dehumanize them. And secretly, certain radicals in the government began to plan for the extermination of the Tutsi people. And crates and crates of machetes were ordered and secret groups of men that they eventually called the Interahamwe were organized. And on a specific day, they, they started to kill Tutsis. The hunting season was opened on Tutsis. 
It was horrific. Anyways, I'd recommend that you read the book called Shaking Hands with the Devil. It was written by Romeo Dallaire, the UN general, who was in uh, Rwanda at the time. So I've met people who survived the Rwandan genocide. They were victims, like, like family members killed, raped. They have physical scars on their body and stories that will keep you awake for weeks. Because they force you to confront the evil, the real unbridled evil that can break out in this world at times. And these Tutsi survivors hardly, if ever, use their victim status as a way to exalt themselves or distinguish themselves or as a badge of honor. Hardly, if ever. It seems to me that the more people, the less people truly suffer, the more virtue they find in their suffering. In a world, in the Western world with so little real injustice, so little real suffering. And that's this is not to dismiss that there's real suffering. There's real injustice here. I get it. But compared to the Rwandan genocide, sorry, you've just not been there. And these Rwandans that I've met, they're just, it's shocking the kind of people that they are. The patient endurance, the ability to deal with difficulty, the stressless attitude towards the vicissitudes of everyday life. It's a beautiful thing to behold. A person who has been viciously assaulted by the evils in this world who refuses to be defined as a victim, but they take responsibility for themselves and they're not taking the blame for what happened to them, but they're taking, resp- they're taking power back and refusing to become the victim of that evil. But rather, they allow the evil to turn them into something better. And this is good overcoming evil, and this is Joseph, and really this is Jesus. And this is what we're called to, to patiently endure. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which have come upon you, as though some strange thing has happened, First Peter 4.12. But rejoice inasmuch as you have become partakers of Christ's suffering. Christ is the epitome of a victim. The real, the only innocent victim in the history of the human race, the only p- truly innocent victim. Now, there's millions of innocent victims. But what I mean by, the, by truly innocent victim is a man who never sinned. Or maybe you wouldn't say that he's the, the only true innocent victim, but you'd say he was the most innocent victim in the history of the world. That's a fairer way to say it. I think it's important for us to always remember that God is in control. God is not controlling, but God is in control. Joseph's confidence and belief in that fact is what allowed him to continue to be faithful and to take personal responsibility for his moral choices, his life choices, and how he would respond to the world around him. Not in resentment, not in bitterness, but as a son of God, as a chosen son of God. Display the character of God in the world in spite of what happens to him. He's a hero, a true hero, someone that should truly be celebrated, as was Jesus. And I think Jesus, too, hanging on the cross and prior to that being tried, condemned, being bound and delivered by the Jewish religious leaders and then bound and delivered to death by Pilate, he understood that he was being delivered by the determined foreknowledge and providence of God. And God was in control, and he could trust that God would bring about a positive outcome if he were loyal and faithful to God. And so he didn't give up. And hence he offers salvation to the world. Joseph says to his brothers at the end of the story, when he finally sees them, you meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. 
God used your evil and turned it into good. And this is the the most beautiful part of the story of Joseph. Uh, So much grace, so much love, so much beauty, so much divine goodness in the, displayed in the story of Joseph, which is just a type, it's just a foreshadowing of the gospel in Jesus. So, quick story to end the commentary for this week. Elijah Lovejoy was a pastor, a Presbyterian minister. He condemned in his ministry the sin of slavery. He believed the Bible condemned slavery. Now, there are many forms of slavery in the ancient world, and even today. Pastor Elijah saw a distinction in the Bible between what the Bible described as man-stealing and other forms of slavery, which, is, which were just forms of indentured servitude, or maybe taking someone into your service because they didn't have family or any other means of income. So they become a partial family. Various forms of slavery mentioned in the Bible that existed in the ancient world and that even exist up until this day. We in the West, we usually define slavery all as what the Bible would describe as man-stealing. And then we see the word slavery in the Bible, and we assume that the Bible endorsed man-stealing, but it didn't. Not at all. Elijah knew this. He understood this distinction. And in understanding this distinction, he opposed slavery. And what many people today do not understand is that although many religious churchgoers endorsed slavery back in those days, the ones who opposed it the most were those who took the Bible the most seriously. And they saw the distinction. They did not define the Bible by the social trend of their day, of their time. The social trend of the time was to believe that black people were inferior and people who were affected by the social trends of their time, they injected those social viewpoints into the Bible and then justified slavery. But those who took the Bible as the word of God could see the distinction between man-stealing and indentured servitude or other forms of, of slavery, and Elijah Lovejoy was one of those people. He was chased down by mobs. He had called Molotov cocktails thrown at his house. Yay, it was a dangerous business to be an abolitionist in those days. He quit the full-time ministry because he wanted to devote himself to the printing work so that he could print more and more tracts against slavery. On one occasion, the mobs, they caught up with him. A lynch mob caught up with Elijah Lovejoy. They lynched him and they killed him. He died. There was a man who was there at the lynching. And I'm going to tell you who that man was in just a second. But before I do, Elijah Lovejoy had a family. He had a wife. He had children. And they lost their father because their father made a principal stand against evil. He stood up against popular sins that the society of his day thought were fine. There's a lot of men who will stand up. There's a lot of women who will stand up against unpopular sins. But there are very few who will stand up and raise their voices against societally popular sin. That takes true moral courage, and that's what we lack, I would say, in the modern world, is true moral courage. Looking virtuous is more important than being virtuous to many, and looking moral and looking compassionate and looking caring is more important to most than truly being caring and truly being compassionate. He's killed. For what? For what? The men who killed Elijah Lovejoy were prosecuted, but they were not charged. But there were some charges leveled against those who reported them. Come on, how unjust, how unfair. How is Elijah Lovejoy repaid for his faithfulness to God? The men who killed him, they get off the hook. Eh. So doesn't that make some people think, what did he die for? What did he die for? To make his wife a widow? There'd be no consequences against his killers anyways. So I guess it was a waste. No, it wasn't a waste. There was a man who was there 
who saw the Lovejoy martyrdom. He had recently been elected to the legislature of his state of Illinois. His name? What was his name? Abraham Lincoln, the eventual president of the United States that would sign a proclamation for the emancipation of all American slaves. God is not controlling, but he's in control. Let's remember that this week. And though we come from dysfunctional families and though we have all kinds of issues we have to overcome, let us not give up our trust in God. He is at work. And although his plans may not be clear and we may feel like quitting and giving up because of the oppressive nature of sin and the hard things and the tough things we're going through, let's trust. Let's keep believing because good will overcome evil eventually. And either God is preparing us for a position of responsibility that requires integrity and depth of character and thickness of skin, or he's going to put us to sleep and affect a greater good either in this world or in the next. So may these thoughts encourage you guys. May they be a blessing to you as you consider this week's lesson There's a million insights in the lesson that we could have considered. I wanted to share a few that were pressing on my heart. And uh, may God bless us this Sabbath. We're going into more lockdowns, guys, and we'll be praying for you all. We'll do Sabbath school on Zoom. Maybe we'll, who knows what, what the future holds. But let's just keep focusing on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And no matter what we go through in this world, no matter what dysfunction we come from, no matter what injustice we suffer, we have a home with God in heaven. And we can trust that through the good and the bad, he's making us better. And he's equipping us to live a life of joy and happiness now and forever. God bless you guys and have a great Sabbath. Take care.